0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined on this recording by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, it's nice to see you. Um, For this episode, we, uh, as we more and more often do, are making use of your Theater Click newsletter. And I wanted to say I appreciated your um, retrospective on Raquel Welch, whom I did not know was Latina um, uh, before I read your, uh, your remembrance of her.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. And a lot of people didn't. And it was one of the great things about that newsletter is I was able to recycle a conference paper that went nowhere. So I was able to put it somewhere. We all have those conference (laughs) papers that went nowhere. And thankfully I have a newsletter and it may happen again. Another dead conference paper comes back to life.
0: Yes. I remember I, it's, it's, I think I might be past this phase in my career though, but there's definitely this phase where, I have gone back and been like, what was that conference paper I wrote that was not totally w- well-baked, but maybe I could develop it into something longer. Um, but I think I have really scraped the barrel <laughs> on all of those old conference papers. and I have to write new con- new conference papers now. Um, uh, I am also very pleased to introduce on this recording our fellow co-host, Shioni Mitra of Barnard College. Shioni works on performance and politics, especially in post-colonial India. You may have seen her work published in TDR, in mapping South Asia through contemporary theater, uh, a book that came out in, by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2014, in Inverse Journal, and a variety of other newspapers and journals, uh, where she writes on contemporary theater and its political dimensions. Uh, Shione has agreed to join our roster of regular co hosts, and we could not be more thrilled. Um, Shione, welcome to On Tap.
2: Thank you, panel. I'm very excited uh, to be here and to sort of actually get to regularly chat with people in the field. <laughs>
0: Indeed, indeed. It was back, way back at Aster in um, New Orleans when we spoke and, and uh, the regular co-hosts and I were so excited that you were willing to, to join this enterprise and then through a variety of scheduling issues, etc. It's been this long since we had you on, but we're um, delighted that you are here. So on this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk about three topics with strong contemporary relevance, and I'm excited to dive in with Brian and shayoni We read the introduction to Vaibhav Saria's uh, book t- from 2021, Hijra's Lovers, Brothers, Surviving Sex and Poverty in Rural India, this ethnographic study of India's Third gender, uh, sometimes identified as transgender women, um, though not always for for interesting reasons, uh, sheds light on the daily lives of this community and the implications that their forms of life bear for queer theory, among other things. We will also discuss the recent and ongoing efforts to ban and restrict drag performance in the United States, with Republican state legislators attempting to advance bills that restrict cross-gender performance in uh, as many as 17 states. Gender performance is shaping up to be a focal point of cultural political discourse for the next big election cycle. Uh, And and finally, we wanted to talk about the big wins by the cast and creative team of Everything Everywhere All at Once at the Academy Awards about a week ago. Uh, This event gives us the occasion to ask about Asian-American representation in theater and in popular entertainment more broadly. Before moving on to those topics, let me first say that I'm recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miserea Tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. I'd like to acknowledge that history and also thank the Buddha Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. Um, and as always, I would encourage listeners to learn more about the territory where they live, where they work. Um, and also please read the land acknowledgement page on our website, on tappod.com, to learn more. So, first, um, we read Vibrav Surya's fantastic book. Hijra's Lovers, Brothers, Surviving Sex and Poverty in Rural India, published by Fordham in 2021. Uh, Saria, whose pronouns are they, them, is assistant professor of gender, sexuality, uh, and women's studies at Simon Fraser. Um, This is, in very brief, an ethnographic study of Hijra communities based in and around Odisha, India. Uh, And there's so much here of, cont- of importance to contemporary theater and performance studies. Um, but Shioni, I thought I would, you know, ask you to sort of give listeners a sense of what this book project is about, um, maybe a couple of the interventions that Saria makes um, into queer theory and um, gender studies uh, through this book, and maybe tell us a bit about how you encountered it in your own research.
2: Yeah, thank you, panel. Um, I think there's a lot to think about with this book uh, and sort of its larger project. But let me start by saying I brought this up as a cis Hindu Savarna and now fairly recently American woman, right? Uh, and what I, what I love about this is the book, Vebhav, what they're doing in Hijra's Brothers and uh, Lovers is really forcing us to reckon with our own positioning. Um, not just the cis trans binary, but I think uh, not just the east west binary, but I think very importantly the urban rural binary, right? And mm-hmm. so much of queer discourse often is seen as positioned in these urban centers. Um, and so to think about what fieldwork in Orisha, which is really, you know, in the eastern part of uh, India, and it, they set themselves up in Bhadrak and in um, Kalahandi, which are some of the poorer districts. And to think about uh, queerness, sexuality, uh, desire, sex work in that terrain, I think, gives us a different set of parameters to think about. Um, So I would say that that's a big part of it. Uh, Similarly, and I was very, very struck in their uh, sort of ethnographic account of saying you know uh, one big difference in these hijra communities and we'll get to how we use the term but that in rural communities hijras tend to stay with their families whereas Mm -hmm. in many urban contexts they actually form biradris or households or communities uh, that have their own kinship structure, they often live separately or are rejected by their uh, natal or biological families, but here that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Surya goes to do field work, uh, they uh, don't have a place to live. Mm-hmm. And so a Hijra sister takes them along and uh, a lady called Mrs. Jan, who I'm assuming is of the Jan faith, a uh, Hindu, Uh, lives by a Muslim shrine uh, and says, well, you know, if you do du'as, if you give prayers, you're allowed this little room in my factory. So I think also to undo this idea of Hindu-Muslim syncretism, so much of sort of Hindu uh, mythology is often invoked, um, and similarly often in Islamic contexts, and Pakistan and others, have this mythological sort of charge, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Surya is doing is saying that we have to think through those ideas within the context of modern citizenship and democracy, right? Uh, and that is, I think, the real intervention of this book. Um, I, I love their term, eroticism and asceticism. Uh, And I'm sure Brian and Pennell will return to this when we're thinking about where where do these sort of uh, drag queen protests come from and how much are they buttressing a white Christian ethno-nationalist kind of rhetoric, right? Uh, Why is this going to be an issue in the 2024 cycle? Mm -hmm. And I think Surya's book gives us a way of thinking about it outside of all these dichotomies of East-West Christian Uh, Hindu, Muslim, um, rural, urban. um, And so I really enjoyed that work.
0: Yeah, I I did too. I think setting it up in terms of the binaries that are challenged or thought through in really um, complex and careful ways is a great way of explaining what is distinctive about this book. I want to hear what Brian has to say before I launch into my own reactions. But I'll say that among those binaries, or one of the things that really stuck with me is that... Um, Saria is walking us into this um, uh, this ethnographic study, um, pointing out partly that things that you might believe, having encountered the category of uh, transgender through um, anglophone or American scholarly discourse, um, is that also the sort of secular religious binary is not necessarily what you would think there. In other words they point out that um, the the hijra community and and status has a long-standing um, role in Indian society it goes back to the era of Sanskrit it go it and that there are and, and I'm cheating a little bit because I watched a video interview with them about normativity in which some of this was explained and wasn't explained I don't think in the reading that we did um, but that while, it's not incorrect to describe hijras as marginalized within Indian society, that there's all sorts of various ways in which normative categories of life are accommodated and accommodate the the hijras, right, in terms of economies of sexual pleasure, um, religious status, um, economic pursuits, like the, the, the forms of life that hijras inhibit – inhabit, pardon me um, – uh, have a have a place that sort of opens up what you might be inclined to think about non normative gender um, ways of life in a strictly American or or Western secular humanist uh, perspective. So there's a lot to talk about there. Um, Brian, what were your what were your thoughts reading this? Uh, assuming that you hadn't encountered it before, which I had not.
1: I hadn't either. And I thank you for bringing it to my to my repertoire of understanding, because it was a it was a really quite striking book, especially for the ways in which um, Saria sort of opens up for me uh, the things that were really striking and especially in the performance studies context was sort of thinking of gender as practice or ethic rather than identity or ontology, you know, to think about sex as um, not so much as this constellation of acts, but actually as an event, um, all of which felt very next sort of, uh, you know, it made me think about the next time I teach of uh, course, I sometimes have taught, of course, Gender and Sexuality Studies 101, in which Judith Butler's theories of performativity sort of come in. And one of the things that would be very interesting for me to sort of open up is how do we think ahead to what does gender as practice mean if we understand it outside of a philosophic context, but more in a sort of specialized uh, non-colonial Space, because I think what I really loved about the book as a whole is, I think, as as Cheyenne as you pointed to, is it really uh, pressed upon the habit in in most Western scholarly practices of defaulting to what are in effect colonial categorical logics, you know, categorizing folks according to typically dichotomies, but then perhaps expanded versions of those same dichotomies, still thinking in colonial categorization, right? And what does it mean, as I think we see in the parts of the book that I spent time with, which is really about when we think about um, gender as a practice, sex as an event, but also all of this in complicated relationships? You know, we, you know, in this sort of web of relationality as opposed to uh, social structure, you know, to sort of really sort of situate it not so much in sort of how do we sort people societally, but how do we understand that societies, uh, especially outside of urban contexts, are pivoting upon deeply entrenched and and historically informed and culturally specific networks of relationships. All of these things, if we think about relationality, if we think about events, and if we think of practices, um, all of these things sort of have such generative... Uh, presence in what are we trying to think about when we think about performance studies. You know, it's sort of really this this sort of mode. I think at first I was like, how is this related to performance and theater studies? But then as I went along, I said, oh, this is actually pressing me to sort of resist my own capacity to sort of diagnose a phenomenon as something according to what is inevitably a colonial categorical logic. So it was a very uh, rich, sophisticated, provocative, and I just loved uh, the wit and empathy of the book. Especially, I don't know if we're PG-13 or not, but especially the way the book uses Uh, thinks about verbs, uh, verbs that are often (laughs) designated as four-letter or obscene verbs, especially one beginning with F in English, you know, to think about the capaciousness of it and to sort of what happens when we think of that as practice, as event, as relationship, as opposed to simply obscenity.
0: Yep. And we're in a way we're sort of forced to think of it as obscenity because this is a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Um, and, and Surya uses the that four-letter F word in a particular technical way as an exploration of of um you know sexuality and sexual practice and, and the linguistics of sex. I think we have to refrain from using it on the podcast because as far as I understand, we could like be delisted from iTunes? I don't know. I th- we're not in the habit of using that language um, uh, so for now let's refrain but I think listeners understand and it's one of the things I really liked about the introduction was that it's unflinching. I mean yeah. there there's accounts from the ethnography about sexual practice that you um, uh, caused my glasses to steam up. Um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but it's rather, um, it's graphic and straightforward in the description of sexual practice and that language, but I admired that way that um, it was done.
2: And I have to say, this is, to me, uh, you know, the, the the troublemaker part of me wonders if we'll get past the filters if I just use the Hindi terms. Because... Ple- please do. Yeah, please, <laughs> no, please do. Be, be, because I know, but I think that is the usefulness of, uh, Surya's intervention here, right, is giving us different ways of thinking about, I think what Brian is exactly right about, sex as an act, mm-hmm. as an event, rather than, you know, sort of uh, continuing citational practices that need to have coherence. Um, so one of the things this is often remarked upon is Hindi and a lot of the sort of languages derived out of Sanskrit in the Nagri, uh, the pronouns are not a big deal, right? It's, 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 it's unmarked. The, the, the Everybody's a they. So the she, her, he, him really doesn't make sense. Um, and that's a really interesting way of thinking about, again, how do we reconcile these um, discourses on trans identity, I think. Uh, and one is to point to sort of non-Euro-American Western context and say, look, linguistically, in many, many languages, it's not a problem. But the bigger one, and this is to the PG-13 argument, which um, I hope, you know, the good South Asian engineers at Apple will let this go. But, he, <laughs> you know, he says, the, uh, they say the difference is I would ask my informants Tum rahi ho, or tum rahi ho. And the verb, the F word in there, that's the verb, itself contains the construction of are you the one penetrating or are you the one being penetrated, right? And I think that is such an interesting way of thinking of the act itself rather than necessarily the bodies uh, and their binaristic sort of categorization Uh, and I will say that this is something that's um, part of again going back to sort of Brian's initial comments on colonialism and how it's really the British Penal Code of 1860 Mm -hmm. that introduced a lot of these categories across the globe and even you know the current sort of in India in Pakistan in Nepal in Bangladesh all of these contemporary movements um, around abolishing homosexuality uh, or the decriminalizing it even in that language it was the unnatural acts right it wasn't the people and it was criminalizing sexuality in terms of what is being done uh, and I think um, really Saria is giving us a different way of thinking about that and um, I think what's lovely also about this, uh, very much in their insistence on using the F word rather than having sex or other sort of um, sometimes euphemisms, is reclaiming pleasure and an mm. insistence on pleasure. And they, mm. I think there's a long discussion um, and a very interesting one on uh, heteronormative productivity of sex, and here, around hindu anxieties of semen and dispensing semen and controlling semen um and i think again this sort of uh surya does a wonderful job of saying well how do we look at it as a series of acts of pleasure
0: Mm -hmm. the the you bring up the relationship with asceticism, which I read the introduction and didn't get into the more full discussion of that, but I thought that that was fascinating because I think what I picked up from the introduction is that the Hijra are—I don't know that they're identified as an ascetic group, but that their ways of life have a lot in common with ascetic practice. Many of them live in poverty, they receive alms. Um, they, they have a practice of going to wedding ceremonies and birth ceremonies where they're, uh, traditionally given money to, to support themselves. Um, but I've, you know, being, not having great familiarity with that tradition in, in India or elsewhere, I think of asceticism as being, you know, a sort of denial of pleasure, um, or a relinquishing of, of sensual pleasure. So it was interesting to see the intensity with which, uh, examines the, um, experience of sexual pleasure as being so, uh, important in this community. Um, uh, I wanted to say just before I forget that Brian, you're, you, you mentioned in passing that you wondered what this had to do with theater and performance studies. And, um, I, I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, I think study, uh, their training is in anthropology and their appointment is in, uh, you know, a gender studies program. Um, but of course the, you know, the, There's a great, this is going to sound pedantic and it's not, there's of course a great Deal of overlap between queer theory and, and performance theory yeah. as matters of social study on the one hand, and and uh, they're weighing in on queer theory debates. Um, but if you look at the footnotes too, um, there's there's citation of Shakespeare, there's citation of um, you know Lee Edelman's uh, a, a claim uh, made about Hamlet, and then also a citation of Richard Halpern on Shakespeare again, um, which made me wonder to what extent the you know, in a way, I feel as though Sadia is sort of going along with other queer theorists who have analyzed literature in the, in the sort of psychoanalytic and cultural studies mode. Um, but those multiple references to, to theater and Shakespeare I thought were, were interesting in the context of the disciplinary mix that's going on.
1: And just to clarify, it first, it was the first thing, and then it was like, oh, this is exactly how to revivify or re- regenerate some of the tired ways we talk about things like performativity and gender as repertoire of practice and stuff like this is, is I think it really, for me, was a really great um, uh, opportunity for me to think through my own intellectual habits, <clears throat> habits around some of these formulations. Mm-hmm. And it became, and also underscored how, if I were to approach this through, with a performance studies lens, how much I would miss. You know, it's both. It's a both and. It's a both and. It both. Mm -hmm. It allows me to sort of reflect on what I use performance studies to do, as I also realize that it is both relevant and kind of irrelevant to the work of this book. And so, it was a great, is a great provocation and a real gift, and uh, to have it be prioritized on my bookshelf.
0: Yeah, in the in the limited occasions in which I've had. Uh, uh, the reason to teach Judith Butler or gender performativity, which comes up from time to time in my teaching, um, I will sometimes refer to the uh, the community of <clears throat> or the tradition of the Albanian sworn virgin, which is another um, well, I don't know that it's proper to say another, but it's a it's a phenomenon that makes gender performativity quite clear because it is a practice in the Albanian highlands where, if as a result of of um, clan killings, a family is left without a male, a member, a female member of the family will uh, convert to a male identity and swear virginity and then is accepted in the community as a man. And it helps instruct the students in the idea that gender performativity is not something invented by American social scientists, um, but that it's a broader phenomenon. And this is, I think, a better example, <laughs> partly because of that you know, particularities of how the Albanian... Um, Uh, transgender phenomenon comes about, Um, but because it is so, it's so interesting, it's so deep historically, um, and because there's also a a finer point about whether or not a hijra uh, person is considered to have transitioned or not. From what I've read, they're understood, they understand themselves, they're understood within Indian society as being a third thing um, not a man who has undergone a social transition or a, any sort of transition necessarily, but a, a third nature that exists alongside the male and, and female natures. Um, so fascinating. But I thought, you know, um, I thought I'd mention that in terms of what it might bring to the broader pedagogical opportunities in performance
2: studies. And if I could quickly add a sort of further contextualization, and I think this is so obvious to a South Asian, we don't think to sort of. Uh, preface it as the first thing, but you only encounter hijra communities as performance. The first thing you will hear is a clap or they're singing. And in all of these social contexts that Sariya is sort of um, uh, chronicling, uh, there there are dances, uh, there are specific movements, there are costumes, but as a communal uh, identity they really are through performance in everyday life, as singing, as dancing, as clapping, uh, that we see them, right? And I have, um, of course, uh, your former host and our colleague, Karim Koop jandani mm-hmm. talks about sort of lip-syncing conventions. My colleague, Paige Johnson, talks about lip-syncing and dancing in Southeast Asian contexts. Claire Piment has done a work on Kwajah Saraz in Pakistan and again their dances and what are these repertories they're pulling from. Uh, so I think it just even in the more sort of uh, habitual performance studies sort of uh, uh, ways of looking at the minisheh of where, where is this bodily repertoire coming from? The hijar community really has a sort of mm-hmm. rich, rich, rich uh, repository of these things.
0: Yeah, there, there's a lot to to point on uh, or 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 point out there. One thing I can't resist bringing up is that um, apparently, in the context of a you know rising Hindu nationalist movement, the hijra are being you know essentially appropriated or or identified as being um, having this importance to traditional Hindu identity, um, which again is a, it's a it's a take on you know cultural politics that may seem very odd to an american or to someone in a in a liberal secular context it's one of the things thing that i things that i thought was so great about the introduction was how saria sort of points these things out and immediately mm-hmm. complicates and and in a certain way disorients but you don't feel disoriented you feel like oh now i understand much better <laughs> how, how um, normativity, sexual practice, um, identity can be configured in different ways and it sort of gets you, I think, out of a, a sort of American provincialism right off the bat. I'm confident saying we all recommend the book and think theater and performance scholars should should pick it up and 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 look more into um, uh, Saria's research. Um, we want to move into a topic that uh, has a lot in common with uh, what we have just talked about, certainly in terms of cultural politics, um, gender performance, et cetera, but um, largely at Brian's urging um, uh, and with the aid of his excellent research on his substack, Theater Click, um, we wanted to talk about the recent efforts to restrict drag performance, which are making their way through many state governments in the United States. So. You know this is a multifarious phenomenon, and there's it's it's a research research challenge because a lot of these bills are being advanced semi independently with similar language through a bunch of different legislative bodies in the United States. Um, But I think it's safe to interpret this as part of an effort uh, by conservative Republican politicians to try to create a cultural issue for electoral gain, and so it can be understood, in my opinion, alongside. Um, efforts to repress and punish trans people, elementary school teachers, medical professionals involved in gender-affirming care. Um, Along with those types of measures, Republican legislators are aggressively targeting drag performance. Um, So like the attempts to remove books from libraries, censor public school education, these efforts are significant, I think, in part because they've they fly directly in the face of the First Amendment. If you're my age, you you know remember the NEA 4 um, when uh, uh, four uh, queer artists in 1990 were denied NEA grants on the basis of the ostensibly offensive nature or subject matter of their work. But what's happening here is not the refusal of funding, but instead efforts to ban or restrict by legislation um, certain kinds of behavior. Um, and they're being identified as cross-gender performance or adult cabaret. Um, the target is ostensibly, you know, cross-gender performance in public or in places where children might be able to see them. Um, so the typical bills are restricting drag performance or cross-gender performance in public spaces or within certain distances of schools or places of worship and the bills are different depending on which one you're looking at but that is the sort of thrust of many of them. The idea, the rhetoric behind them is that this need, that these types of performances need to be uh, restricted or banned from public places where children might be able to see. Um, Brian, I'm going to ask you to, you know, give us your thoughts on this phenomenon quickly, but I want to make a couple of observations. One is that um, to whatever extent the aim here is really to punish or intimidate non-normative gender performance or merely just to activate an element of their voting base uh, without having to do anything to improve people's lives, the way that this is being framed in the political rhetoric is that it is supposed to have something to do with protecting children, which essentially caters to a virulent strain of conspiratorial politics activated during the Trump era and which attempts to cast all manner of individual expression as being aligned with some sort of plot to harm children or groom children. Second, um, the laws proposed and enacted, I think one has been enacted in Tennessee and others are under deliberation, but the effects uh, would not just be to hamper, restrict, make more difficult the activities of drag performance artists, but really any instance of cross-gender performance, which could encompass a lot of different behavior. Um, So it would not necessarily just be in shows that are organized as drag shows or drag drag queen story hours, but pride parades would fall under this, right? Um, Theatrical productions, uh, including Shakespeare, where there is cross- Dressing or cross-gender performance, um, and of course, it could these laws could be brought to bear on the everyday lives of trans people and a whole gamut of of queer people. Um, so there's there's you know it's it's alarming. It's it's insidious. It feels like something sharper-edged and more malevolent than some of the cultural political campaigns that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, but Brian, I don't know in your in your research and reading in this topic, where where do you see I don't know, the, the the most important points that we should be paying attention to or perhaps the relevance for um, theater and performance that we're used to studying.
1: It's like you say, it's a snarl. It's a snarl of things to try to untangle. But I do think the crucial things are is this is um, arguably cynically uh, political motivated kind of, kind of sort of culture war stuff, which depending on how you want to track it culture wars have been an animating force in american politics going back as long as we want to look but especially around questions of uh, introducing the threat of 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 uh, the threat to children we can cycle it back um uh to the late 80s early 90s the late 70s the mid 50s you know it goes and it goes and it goes so i think that there's there's this sort of it's a it's a it's an old song with new new lyrics, right And so part of what we need to know is understand that, but also understand I think the the part that I feel um, so two things I want to say is on the one hand, this is going to have a uh, outsized impact on certain lives and certain bodies in our society and those bodies are going to be the bodies that are perceived to be trans or perceived to be. a gay in certain ways that violate gender, gender simplicity, let's say. And so, and so even if this are, like you can say, it's a, it's a story hour, or it's a, or it's a club performance, or it's, you know, there's ways in which these laws and the rhetoric around these laws is going to have outside impact on the lives in both, uh, just whether it's sort of, coming up in this society or encountering violence from this society. The other thing I think was specifically relevant for uh, performance historians and for those, you know, it's going after their venues. It's going after people doing acts in public. It is in effect uh, a on public convening in particular ways at which performance is a locus. And so though there's no clear thing about whether hairspray can be shut down in Tennessee and the folks and the venues charged or the performers charged, it doesn't also limit that out. So it's gonna be an interesting set of questions of once, the, as one of my uh, graduate school professors who was a feminist legal historian, she said, one of the worst things about bad laws is the bad things they do and how hard it is to get them off the books. And so once these laws enter the books, they become part of the script of selective enforcement. And what we know about judicial practices and policing is selective enforcement of laws, uh, end up targeting populations that are the ones who are perceived, who have the most vulnerability and the least places to be outside of public. And so by removing the public sphere as a space for queer existence and for trans existence, by making it vulnerable, it reduces the safe spaces. Like if libraries are being attacked for having queer bodies in them or queer books in them, then, then that's just, I think our schools, you know, these are just kind of spa- pub, semi-public spaces where, um, often, uh, queer folks have found their way to themselves and to each other. And so it's, so I think there's going to be a collateral impact we're already seeing as the newsletter documents, we're already seeing how, how um, empowered school districts or uh, anxious high school directors are experiencing the pinch of what shows they select or what, uh, or the unexpected, like to show that like, this week, the news was that the Adams family, which for the last ten years has been in the top ten most produced high school musicals, is now being attacked as being inappropriate for the for community. You know, you know, and so, so these are, I think it's just it's tapping it's an old song, new lyrics, but it's also. Uh, I think that the impacts on bodies and on spirits is going to be huge. Finally, the one thing I, you know, I just think Caritha Mitchell called it. If we look back to her 2018, our colleague, Caritha Mitchell, performance uh, scholar and literary historian in 2018 published an article in the African-American Review, which I mention a lot whenever I'm anywhere, called Identifying White Mediocrity and Know Your Place Aggression, a Form of Self-Care. This 2018 essay really talks about the violence against black folks and the violence against trans folks about a historical phenomenon of what Mitchell calls know your place aggression. It's not simply backlash, it's about get, you know, it's about a sort of an, an ideological resistance. And that's where I do think. Um, it's worth us thinking as capaciously as we can, as understanding uh, the many spots of vulnerability in our dis- in our respective communities. You know, like if you're many of our colleagues in Florida or in Tennessee, like they're encountering certain things, but all of us need to be aware of this because this is a boilerplate set of legislation that is, uh, as I uh, participated in an event earlier today, there's been 30 bills pending in approximately a dozen states across the country and some of them target performers, some of them target venues, some of them start with misdemeanors, some go immediately to fel- felonies. But the crucial thing, building off of our previous conversation, is all of them are very emphatic about defining what drag is, what it's for, and how it is fundamentally about sex, and therefore is is um, has to be as we were worried about being being uh, triggering issues with the podcasting platforms, this triggering different mechanisms of punitive surveillance. And so this sort of introducing, uh, choosing this definitional imperative that legislative, legislative powers can do, it's, um, it's concerning, it's also, I did watch this documentary not too long ago called Visibility, The History of Gays and Lesbian on Television. If you have, a, if you have Apple Plus, I would encourage you to go look at the episode on the 70s um, and to look at the sort of the campaign that brought Harvey Milk to the, pot, to the mainstream in California around the Briggs Initiative and about the attempt to ban gay teachers. And it's just sort of like, it's, it's, it's chilling just how, how yeah. much it all rhymes, how much it all rhymes
0: yeah, yeah, it is it's a uh, reminiscent of some really nasty stuff um, that reminds me more I think or looks actually more like laws that were passed in the 19th century mm-hmm. than in the 20th century um, that banned cross cross uh, gender dress as a pretext for being able to send police into gay bars essentially yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah so, Shayone what what um, what does all of this bring to mind for you um
2: i think several things and i think you know and not to make this too um new york centric but i think there are stakes of queer history here Mm -hmm. which uh yesterday for instance so along with brian's this is clearly to target venues it's also clearly to target sites of uh historical significance for queer organization, for instance. So yesterday, there was Drag Queen Story Hour at the um, Lower Manhattan LGBTQ Community Center, which is, you know, if you've been there, it's uh, within eyesight of the AIDS Memorial, which has a Walt Whitman poem now. It's within a two-minute walk to Stonewall Inn. And there's a certain sort of resonance of Lower Manhattan and ACT UP and all of the activism of the 80s, again, the AIDS uh, pandemic. And so there's Drag uh, drag Queen Story Hour there, which our Attorney General, Letitia James, attends. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's organized protest against it. Now, what's fascinating to me is there are videos circulating on Twitter, and you can find them, of uh, protesters and counter-protesters. And some of these people who show up wearing Proud Boy t-shirts and other things um, getting beaten up. Right. So there's a real question of masculinity, the performance of masculinity. There are lots of memes going around of who are the real men? Is it people in six inch heels who will beat you up? Or is it the boys who are wearing T-shirts that announce they're proud? You know, so I think, again, reading um, these both as real and symbolic and all of these sort of what is the discourse around masculinity, around uh, childhood, around Grooming all of this, I think it's um, played out in very antagonistic and clear ways in the public realm.
1: Well, and one of the things that's, I think, going to be really interesting is panel mentioned uh, the idea of the bar of like going after other spaces of public convening and attacking sort of attire. And one of the things that students, uh, anybody who's sort of looked to the history or might have encountered narratives about this history, discovered the sort of the tactics of survival that are also tactics of resistance and also tactics of community formation. So this interesting question of this kind of repression, at which points does it actually activate a more empowered resistance? one of the things I was reminded of is there is now a sort of a conversation among uh, folks who um, again, I attended this event sponsored by GLAAD earlier today about for drag artists and their allies and how to respond. And one of the things they talked about is be intentional with counter protest. They said that in from inside, um, re- retorting to chants with chants just amplifies the sense of chance. So, for the folks inside, that can feel very vulnerable. So, the handbook that the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti Violence Project is, or uh, I think it's just AVP now, um, they introduce, they have a sort of a song book. So, they say one of the best tactics for uh, counter protest is to answer the chants with songs. Which also reminds me, if we recall, the sort of the protests that Fred Phelps and his cohort did against the funeral of Matthew Shepard and how they, they created a band of angels to protect. And so this question of uh, these different gestures of act and presentation and intervention and using techniques like uh, song, like dance, like speech, like music, like rhythm, like clapping, like all the things we were talking about, the Isra, sort of announcing their presence, but also creating their own space... I think it will be an interesting opportunity in a moment that a lot of queer culture has been disaggregated from a, a community by sort of technological means of connection and like the the sort of the fact of the pandemic. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how what is the, the the creativity of queer resistance, because what what we do know is every time. In in the U.S. the the brutality is real and it's brutal and its costs are human and and true, but the creativity of the resistance is often transformative and epoch shaping. So um, hmm. so I think it's a I think we're in for um, we're in for a bumpy ride coming up. It looks like, but I'm also really. Um, uh, curious to learn from all the generations of queers who are activated by this to sort of discover new forms of creative self-expression, creative resistance, and transformative counter-protesting. Because whether it's about figuring out how to do your dress, how how to do your outfit so you don't get arrested, or whether it's figuring out how to how to answer a um, a, a violent, vicious taunt with a with a witty song, all of these are techniques Mm. we know have worked uh, to help queer survival in years past, in generations past. And so it's, um, but all of these, again, are tools that we as performance historians, performance theorists, performance scholars um, are in a position to document, to amplify, to be attentive to, to figure out how to um, to really be alert to that high school theater is now becoming a target spot, just as school libra- children's librarians have become target spots. So how can we, as we send students out into um to the worlds in which they're working. How do we, what are the tools that might be necessary for students if they're entering a high school classroom? How can they be a supportive affirming uh, in a, how can they do the work they wanna do by taking that path? It's an it's an opportunity for us to listen, learn and grow and remain constantly vigilant.
2: And one other thing, and I think this goes back to both our discussions around um, Surya's uh, book and what Brian is saying, you know, I. I will confess, one of the counter-protests yesterday, the chant was, go back to Long Island, and that made me laugh. But it's also reinforcing this urban, rural, or New York versus progressive state versus red or purple state. And I think that's where we really have to push ourselves to undo all of these ideas of some kind of progressivism tied to location. Hmm. Uh, and really thinking about, okay, queer survival as as um, something that, has to be addressed everywhere and at all levels.
0: This is reminding me of something I have to bring up now because um, it involves the research done by one of our former graduate students, Payne Bannister, who's now uh, working on uh, his PhD at Pitt. Um, but he looked into, he's a drag performer himself, and, and looked into and researched um, the sort of economics and labor dynamics of drag performance. But specifically in the Midwest and um I don't want to ascribe to this research ideas that weren't in it, but one of the resonances here is the idea that these are, uh, you know, queer performers or drag performers who are working, you know, sometimes in rural areas or small cities, um, and that the that idea that you see in in Saria's book that things play out differently, though there's absolutely. Um, performance traditions and queer people surviving and 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 you know creating in these rural areas is really important. Um, but it's also the reason I was thinking of Payne's w- research is that he also looked at. Cross-dressing and anti-masquerade laws in St. Louis, which are coming up now, because these are the same types of laws that are trying to be re trying to be rewritten. Um, one of the questions that was raised by one of the articles you linked to, Brian, was: you know, what does this mean for the theater industry? There's a sense that these states are going to be perceived as not friendly to to queer people. That's going to be a problem, of course. And then there's also this sort of question of, you know, what does this mean that the state police are going to come and shut down productions of Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I came up uh, – that I found pursuing this was that in St. Louis, the, you know, the cross-dressing ban, there was a law passed in the – I think the 1843 that was finally repealed by the ACLU in 1986. And one of the things the ACLU showed was that it was not used for theater performance. They brought up in their argument Mm -hmm. that they did not shut down the performance of Torch Song Trilogy at the Muni, which is a big outdoor theater here in St. Louis, with these laws. Um, And so they used that observation to point out that actually what they're doing is just this is just a law that allows police to go into gay bars and arrest people and in some horrific cases have them committed to psychiatric institutions. Um, but i don't bring this up to say that you know the theater industry doesn't need to worry about this but i don't think that the point of what these legislators is trying to are trying to do is to you know they might want to shut down our police pride parades i don't think that they want to shut down shakespeare in fact when they're asked about it these legislators say oh no 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 this has nothing to do with shakespeare even though the laws as written are so broad and ambiguous that you could absolutely arrest an actor who's performing shakespeare in public if they're not in you know, the, the correct gender dress. Um, but I thought that was an interesting feature, you know, an interesting historical fact that actually the disparate, the use of these laws, not in public aesthetic performance, not applied to theater in general, but applied to particular venues of, of you know, queer uh, sociality and to, you know, individuals who are being policed because of their, you know, uh, non-normative uh, expression or identity. That, that may be the point.
1: Well, and I do think just very quickly is before we shift and I'll use this time to make our transition. But one of the things that's really crucial is that um, uh, the thing to be alert for, I think, and to be alert for is when this starts going into targeting anybody who's paid for doing drag and invoking it as sex work. Because what we do know is that licensees of freedom expression or artistic expression have been often very expressly delimited from categories of performance that are understood as being sex work or being adult-oriented entertainment. So there is a kind of a long-standing habit in American jurisprudence to sort of say that certain professions do not have the right to freedom of expression, and among those are folks who are working in what are considered adult-oriented businesses. And so I think when we start seeing the laws targeting the individuals not for where they're working. Or or what they're doing, but the fact that they're getting paid to do it is going to be the next point that we need to be very alert to because, and again, looking to some of the pathbreaking scholars of of stripping and and sex work in performance studies registers will help us understand that continuity here and thinking of Jessica Burson and Kirsten Poland and some of their work that really thinks about the continuities between the way uh, Anglo-American jurisprudence understands uh, sexually explicit labor. So, um, but I do think that uh, to do a pivot and to yeah. switch gears entirely from the kinds of, of, of professional professional performances that are being sort of deemed as in, as as inappropriate for all audiences and not worthy of full, full attention. I think what, what I did when I suggested this third topic of thinking about what do we make of the celebration of the extraordinary success that the film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, um, what does it open up the question around Asian-American uh, representation in the contemporary moment. And the question of, you know, is it a breakthrough? You know, of course it's precedent setting, mm-hmm. of course it's transformative, of course we can point to all kinds of historical path breaks, like things that have never happened before. And the sort of the number of Asian-American nominees were extraordinary. I have a sort of a long hobby horse for best supporting actress. Never have there been two Asian-American nominees for best supporting actress. So there is this kind of moment where it's like, yes, this is a historic, historical moment, but I I would also say that, you know, as somebody who my first book um, really did think about these sort of moments of visibility and legibility that are often punctuated by sort of backlash or erasure, I was struck by the fact of of, uh, if anybody watched the Oscars, um, it might be worth noting, it had a historic number of nominations. It won a bunch of them. Mo- it's the first film to one, uh, in most of the major, in, in like five of six, five of six of the major categories, picture director, um, and then three acting, ca- like acting categories, et cetera. And three acting categories, um, so it had all these precedent-setting wins, but one of the things, and one of the things crucially, crucially was Michelle Yeoh was the first Asian-identifying actress to be nominated to be to win Best Actor in um, ever, or if you want to think about it, of Asian at all, then we can go back to to Merle Oberon, uh, who was not known to be not openly Asian, to evoke Raquel Welch again, um, but this, but. <laughs> the thing that was most striking to me was how the person who presented her the award was the last woman of color to win Best Actress 20 years ago, uh, Halle Berry. And that moment was understood to be a breaking the glass ceiling moment. And so what we see in the very moment when Halle Berry is deeply moved um, to be presenting Michelle Michelle Yeoh the Oscar, there is the sense that this is simultaneously always already um, a breakthrough, but also not, you know, this balance of like, what is it like is, as you were asking in our preparation for this for this episode panel, is it more than it, anything than it just being way overdue? What's notable about this? And I do think it opens the question of where are we now with this moment of visibility, both on a, on stages around the country, but then also on screens around the country? Are we at a tipping point or is this just the cycle of American cultural sort of phases of interest?
2: And I have to say, you know, these questions of visibility to me are, you cannot take them um, away from questions of privilege and access. So, for instance, also in the Oscars, um, they got Deepika Padukone, who is, you know, the biggest superstar in Bollywood right now, uh, to announce Natu Natu, right, the song that was nominated and eventually won for Best uh, Original Musical Production or whatever the category is. Uh, But the dancers who were presenting the song were not South Asian. And so who gets the stage? Who gets the microphone? As someone speaking into a microphone right now, it's uncomfortable. But I think, again, you know, who are we supporting when we're thinking about access or increased access to Asian-Americans or minority presentations? Um, the superstars will always get first dibs. And And not the dancers, and not the actors. And the industry
1: will, too, because I think one crucial thing about the... The way that the presentation of Natu Natu was done was it was the dancers that the choreographers for the show hired, and they did they they found two actors who could look Asian South Asian ish, even though one was I think Mena and something, and the other one was Jewish you know American and they and there was a, but then it was a multi multiracial polyglot of everybody else doing the dancing, and so the, even the choreographers for the number were not themselves South Asian, but were instead the the group nappy tabs who are best known for so you think you can dance. So so it is this kind of industrial filter, right? What was expedient for the industry is often what will trump it. So amplifying the legibility of a Bollywood superstar, for a film that wasn't a Bollywood film, that was a Tollywood film, right? And so it's like this kind of, and, and for me, it, in like that's that kind of easy slippage that we're at this of like with represent like in all the heralding of representation matters, there's often the expectation that what follows is authenticity or accuracy. But actually, the industry, the way the industry works is representation matters as actually interested in alighting specificity to go to the generality. And that is, I think, when we look at mainstream. U.S. popular performance, but then by extension, um, sort of what are the shows and productions on sort of New York stages? Because part of the other reason I thought this topic was useful was it is quite a, it's a remarkable year for uh, films about Asian Americans, about the Asian diaspora, about Asian slash Americans. You know, generational stories. It's it's um, as a regular New York theater goer, I, I've been struck by how many different shows there are going on right now in, in this year in New York. But then also like um, Uh, Cambodian rock band is on a tour, like, which is sort of unprecedented that a major play by, uh, an Asian American writer with an all Asian cast is on a national tour. That doesn't happen a lot. So there's a kind of way in which, uh, and then other like, uh, um, Yellow Rednecks is getting its premiere regionally. So there's a lot of other stuff going on. But it's so it, it's hard to know, is this some is this a moment worth taking notice of as the success of, the, of everything everywhere all at once might suggest? Or is this happenstance. Like, it's hard to know, but I know, Shioni, you've seen a lot of the New York shows. Um, I've seen some, and it, there's a list. Like, we've got Wolf Play, we've got um, Public Obscenities, we've got Illyria, we've got Us Catch, Catch Can early in the season. We've got several shows coming up, including big musicals like Monsoon Wedding and Life of Pi. You know, so it's this kind of, there's a ferment. So if, for Asian American actors and creatives, uh, for Asian and Asian-American actors and creatives, there's, uh, there's a sort of the other flip side of the industry's operation of hunger and access to opportunity. Like there's finally opportunities for, the art, for artistry to have professional compensation. But then the flip of that is the industry will work as the industry needs to work, not, not always attending to these particularities or specificities.
2: Absolutely. And I think there are big differences here in how works are developed and supported between the theater and the film industry. And you're right that, you know, New York theater is having this amazing moment of um, not just Asian, but South Asian American yeah, playwrights. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, so Han Seol Jung's work moved from the Soho Rep couple of i think just pre-pandemic to now um or maybe it was 2020 um it
1: closed it was it uh, was it was intact during during the shutdown so then it remounted it remounted, there, it remounted yeah. after the shutdown and then moved uptown uh just recently
2: Exactly. Yeah and uh similar so now Soho Rep is producing uh public obscenities uh which is Shayok Misha Chaudhry's amazing play uh Deepa Porohit's Illyria... um they have a different economy than, let's say, the Mira Nair Monsoon Wedding mm-hmm. or uh, the Chakraborty Life of Pi, because those are much more produced musicals being sort of tested and workshopped in different places. Monsoon Wedding has been at Berkeley, has been in... At the World the, Cup. I think Abu Dhabi. Yeah, yeah, during yes, the World so Cup. Like, you know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been developed for years, and we know that Life of Pi has had a West End run and is now making it sort of across the pond, as they say, um, but... Uh I think what Shayok and uh, Deepa are doing in their plays is interesting and different. I'm very, very excited for multilingual or bilingual productions yeah. uh, to be making their way in ways that, you know, again, so much of theater is about the questions of language to hear different languages than English, which are not translated, for instance, um, or which there are parts of the play you won't have access to. Um, I don't know if you remember the play last year. I think it was called The English Lesson, the uh, or just Or it was Iranian just called Eng-
1: English. It was just called English. It was English. Yeah. That's
2: right. Um, and, you know, uh, I thought the actors did a masterful job of switching accents to show when they were speaking uh, sort of, uh, Farsi-inflected English versus um, uh, Farsi, but the last line of that play wasn't translated for us, and it wasn't Farsi. And there are many parts of sort of uh, production and public obscenities which are not translated. Um, and I kept thinking, what do people who don't speak Bangla even get out of this? But apparently, enough because I took students. Uh, so. In terms of representation, even just linguistic representation is very exciting to me in terms of thinking about uh, Asian and Asian-American performance.
0: Do you feel as though there are—oh, pardon me. I was just going to interject real quick. Do we feel as though there's a, a I don't know, a syncopation or some sort of relationship between where these moments or, um, I don't know, rising of visibility or or prestige to uh, artists with a certain background between Hollywood and the theater. I'm thinking about this because uh, David Henry Huang is coming in a few weeks here and I, you know, I got to work with him on a play that he wrote several years ago. But I think you know, of his career um, and in Butterfly and what that meant at that time in theater. And I just don't – I think I was not old enough at the time to see or to gauge whether there was something going on similarly with, you know, East Asian American or Chinese American visibility at that time. I think of the social – reach and the sort of implied publics of theater and, and film or television as being so, somewhat different and, and theater catering to a somewhat nichier, um, I don't know, more cosmopolitan audience. Um, does that mean that there's a sort of lag? Does it mean that there's any re- you know relationship between these two, um, categories of popular entertainment?
1: I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that honestly it's about, uh, for me, it's, it goes back to, um, both industries are conservative because they're resource intensive on the outlays. So there's this way in which there's kind of a reluctance to take a risk. And so I do think that what's big, the big, but the big measures can be in Hollywood. It's sort of, will the audience show up? And that's one of the things that often, uh, hits different population groups differently is will the audience show up for this niche, uh, that this thing that won't have a general interest, or it won't have a general audience mm-hmm. base, um, but I do think, like, going back to uh, a show that I saw in 2016 at Playwrights called. Uh, Julia Cho's play Aubergine, which also has extended passages in Korean. It was one of my first times seeing a play where there was extended passages in Korean with no interest in translating, so you ended up having, as an audience member, learning to respond differently to that sense of exclusion. And as a person who specializes in Latino and Latinx performance, I know that audiences get really hostile when they are hear even three or four words in Spanish, and often audiences at talkbacks get very offended. But I was struck by the fact that there was a kind kind of a sense in uh, languages other than Spanish uh, for all kinds of complicated reasons, there are ways that it can become a stylistic device of comprehension can become a device of sort of both speaking to a specialized, to an, uh, this This play is for a different community, but also opening up different capacities for audiences, theater audiences in particular, to learn from other metrics of meaning that occur on the stage. And so that if the production approaches it so that it's not aestheticized, but it's also not necessarily presumed to be comprehensible, like there's a way in which that it can really do different work, which is something that would never happen in theater or in, in film or film or television film or television has to be immediately accessible and it's measured uh, increasingly in digital forms by metrics of audience intention that are highly refined i think theater has a different latitude of where artistry ends up winning in certain ways but of course the metrics of audience attendance still does come back to it of what and i, I but i do think what we've seen is um our audiences will never accept in the theater has been shaken up more drastically in the Mm -hmm. last decade than, especially I would say post-Hamilton, than uh, film's assumptions about what is in the realm of the possible. I think there's a conservatism uh, that's happened even as we see the proliferation of streaming dramas that's still really attentive to metrics of eyeball attention whereas in the theater there is a sense of like okay maybe artistry is, a, is the path forward and um, so I do think that this it's worth noting and I do think uh, thanks for clarifying the South Asian presence is, is the rise of mena and South Asian presence on New York stages the last two years has been quite extraordinary and and I think um, will be understood as a sort of historic hopefully pivot and trend forward as opposed to just a moment. But I do think it's worth attending to, especially for theater scholars, attending to the fact of these shows and the different ways that Family stories that involve queerness, that involve in traditional trauma, that do, uh, operate diasporically and transnationally, can speak in different aesthetic vocabularies. That they don't have to match is also one of the things that theater can do that film often can't. They, you know, there's a kind of way where I don't think anybody expected that Crazy Rich Asians blockbuster success would be followed up by something of the aesthetic vocabulary of Everything Everywhere All At Once. But the pitch rooms in Hollywood are going to be different, saying it doesn't have to be Crazy Rich Agents or it doesn't have to be, but it can be big. It can make a lot of money. Like there's there's a different vocabulary. And I do think that um, seeing the developmental paths of some of these works and these writers and these writers, because the currency on stage is the playwright. Um, And these playwrights getting these major productions, just as there's for the first time in anybody's memory, there's three plays later this year by Afro-Latina writers on major Broadway, off-Broadway theaters. These are kind of, this hasn't really happened. And this idea that these artists get this kind of uh, window and access and attention is important to note for theater historians, even if you're in the remote, even if you're not in New York, it's worth noting that this is happening.
0: I feel seen. Thank you. (laughs) Um, well, uh, this has been a fabulous, wide ranging discussion. Um, before we wrap things up though, I'd like to invite our co-hosts to offer their drafts. Uh, podcast listeners will will know that our drafts on on tap are um little kernels of of thought or research, or perhaps there's something we've read or seen that we want to share with the listeners. um uh Shani, for your. First appearance on on tap, first of many. Uh, would you like to offer your draft first?
2: Sure, it's very drafty. Uh, so so with that w- with that caveat, uh, it really was. I think picking up on everything we've talked about today, I really got to thinking about um, Shyok Misha's public obscenities and what it means as Bangla theater. And mm-hmm. I will say that there is, you know, um, while Brian has been amazing uh, in sort of chronicling the industry standards there's a whole series of amateur uh, theater festivals within the South Asia community and there used to be one in Jersey and now there are several and my colleague at LMU Orno Banerjee has set himself the task of like flying across the country every time there's a play and he's very busy Mm -hmm. Um, and you know but these two streams don't seem to meet the amateur Bengali theater that's coming out of communities and Durga Pujas and those kinds of things and this kind of professional production. Uh, And I think also, just something uh, that Brian said, uh, public obscenities has very interesting takes on sexuality uh, and where the locus of progressivism, a certain kind of radical imagination might be. Uh, I'm not giving anything away by saying that, you know, at least two of the protagonists are sort of uh, American university or American city-based people who go to Kolkata and are digging up this family history um, sort of involuntarily, but their actual project is translating queerness and queer terminology. Um, So there's that kind of discussion, but there's also in that play, again, going back to um, Hijras, Brothers and Lovers, there is a discussion between a young trans activist and an older member of the Hijra community. And the younger one is like, oh, can I be, you know, can I be an actor? Are you filming this? Is this going to be a documentary film? Uh, What is your path to a visa? And the older Hijra... uh, uh sort of elder she's lovely and she tucks in her 10 rupee into her blouse and says you guys have fun right so what are the sort of uh generational and again locational um expectations of progressivism and radicalism uh, i think that's where i'm going to with bangla theater
0: fantastic thank you um brian what's on your mind um
1: switching gears drastically um I am in love with a new reality TV show uh, that I has just sort of caught my heart in ways that I'm just shocked by and fascinated by. And it feels like it's 2000 all over again when we're discovering Survivor and Big Brother for the first time. And it's a show called The Traitors, which uh, is available in three complete seasons on uh, the Peacock streaming network. It's the only place you can get it. The American one features the extraordinary Alan Cumming as a host with a mix of reality TV folks and regular folks doing it. Uh, But then they also have launched since they've launched uh, Traders UK and Traders Australia. And so far, I I recommend the order of watching U.S., Australia, then U.K. But it is there is just something amazing about uh, way back when I read a book by Stephen Johnson um, called Everything Bad is Good for You. And he did the most compelling reading of, of, of the then. It was like a book from 2005 or 2006. And he did a really compelling reading of the then popular, like figuring out, like, why do people love Survivor? And he said, basically, it's a way that we can study workplace behaviors. We can can watch people enact tactically in intimacy at the same time. And it's one of the only spaces where we can really figure out the dimensions of those complicated, intimate ways we live in our lives that are not about our chosen relationships or our familial relationships and traders really goes there in ways that is just fun it's got all the best things about reality tv and again um we just started uk i've done us australia and now just starting uk but i'm completely hooked i watch a lot of reality tv but it's the only one i get it it's the only one i'm really excited about right now so i feel i should share it because i know there's some other reality inclined listeners out there
0: Yes, indeed. Um, that's great. I remember seeing the publicity for the American version of The Traitors, and I was so mystified by what I was seeing. I was like, this is a reality show hosted by Alan Cumming? Like, what? why did he want to do that? And oh, I he's guess it's brilliant. because it's good. He is brilliant. Oh, I'm sure. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, since we wrapped up our run of The Good Wife, uh, uh, my, my – My wife and I have been looking for more Alan Cumming content, so we'll have to look there. Um, uh, For my draft, I think, you know, in 63 episodes of this, I'm probably in danger of redoing a draft. Probably has happened more than once. Um, I imagine I've talked about my stand-up comedy class before, but I'm teaching it again for the first time in a couple of years. And I really am convinced that this is something that um, other theater and performance faculty should consider doing because it brings students in who might not otherwise be interested in a class in performance. And it allows you to teach them content that young people, college students are always interested in. But it also gives you all these great ways to, in, to basically teach a introduction to performance theory through that stuff. So I'm, I get to teach, you know, Victor Turner, I teach Michael Kirby, I teach Judith Butler. Uh, there's all sorts of performance theory and, and uh, performance studies concepts, liveness um, that map so well so easily onto stand up it's not without challenges because as things change and people's reputations change when i started teaching this um uh for example it was in the first year that i taught this when hannibal burris gave a set uh mentioning bill cosby's reputation which he was not yeah he hannibal burris does not deserve credit for bringing all of that to light the women who banded together and decided to go public are the ones who are responsible for that but as the as you can expect over the years, I've had to figure out how to deal with Bill Cosby's legacy and stand up differently. Um, But nonetheless, it's something that the students continue to respond to. You get students that I don't know that it brings them into the major or they take other classes in in our department. But um, it certainly allows you an opportunity to present performance analysis and performance studies um, to people who might think they aren't interested in that um, because they're interested in comedy. So I'm enjoying teaching that once again this year. So a final mini draft. Um,
1: Have you encountered the book um, Stay Cool by Aaron Sachs? Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Face of Climate Change? No. It's an amazing. That sounds it's amazing. an amazing short quick read and it's quite funny. So, Stay Cool Great. by Aaron Sachs, who's an environmental historian who's dipped his toe into performance
0: studies as a result of stand-up comedy. I'm going to look that up. Brian, that's so good. Thank you for tagging onto my draft and making it even better. I mean, making it good. Well, it's a
1: chaser. And <laughs> um, we can call it a chaser. We can just call it a chaser. It's a
0: draft of the chaser. I don't know. I feel like we got to be careful with this uh, this alcoholic metaphor. Well, I'm the sober um, one in the room,
1: so I can make I can make the joke.
0: You're allowed to. You're allowed to add chasers, um, uh, Brian. Thank you as always, uh, Shyoni. Thank you again so much, and and welcome. And, and this couldn't have gone better. I'm so delighted you're you're with us on the podcast, and can't wait to record with you again. Listeners, keep us in your feeds, and we will have another release for you in about a month.
2: On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre, with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com, that's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.